All right, Hebrews 11. Speaking of a race. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 17. And we're working through this hall of faith, as it's called. And now we're going to come to this lengthy section. We've been doing little pieces, you know, of just individual people. But now we come to a lengthy section by faith. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his sons, the sons of Joseph, and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Okay, let's talk about this for a second. So basically, there's a twofold purpose in the book of Hebrews in this section. And I just, you know, say it in a different way every week so that we're, you understand what's going on. The scope of this section is would be number one, to encourage people to join the journey. So remember that for, seems like months now, we've been talking about the fact that there are people, hearers of the book of Hebrews, that this book is written directly to, that are on the fence because of the, the great cost of following Christ, the, the immense uh, persecution. And so what better way to encourage a group of uh, people who have grown up in Old Testament Judaism to embrace Jesus than to use the Old Testament. And I've said this, and I'll continue to say this. The greatest expert in the Bible, the New Testament wizard, nobody even comes close to, to the depth of understanding the Old Testament like the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews will lead you to an understanding of the Old Testament that is beyond any other place in Scripture. If you can, if you can understand and, and grasp a hold of what Hebrews says about the Old Testament, you will be an Old Testament scholar. And tonight is another passage where if it were not for this passage... You would never hear this conversation. Nobody would even think of these things. So, to join. Then secondly, to encourage those who are on the journey. You see, because not only are there people on the fence, but there are people who have already committed to Christ who need to continue because they're thinking, man, I don't know if this is worth it. I've lost my family. I've lost my job. I've lost my income. I've lost everything. I don't know if I can keep going. And so, there's... This is going to encourage them to keep going. So if, you, if all you ever knew was Old Testament Judaism, nothing would be more powerful and persuasive in your life than a conversation about Old Testament saints, right? Sure. So, again, biblical salvation has always and only come through faith, never by works. And so this is... It's just driving this point home. These people 
all they have ever known is a works-based religion. And so their huge hang-up is going to be, how in the world can we be right with God simply by faith? I mean, how could that possibly work? So it's no different from people who, who have grown up their whole life in Catholicism and they start to come to church here. And as God begins to uh, lure them with the gospel, the, the clash of the world in which they have grown up and the, the liberty of the gospel, I mean, it, it, is, it, it literally wrecks their life. Well, that's nothing compared to this. So to illustrate, Hebrews will continue to use Old Testament examples to show us what true faith is. So, here's how we start. 17 talks about Abraham tested, offering up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Now, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. You, you have to feel the tension of the crisis that Abraham's in, and you have to begin to, to reconcile the fact that there's a world of difference between denying your circumstances and defying them. Because what, what this passage tonight does is it forces us to, it, it, it will press us into being what we all ought to be, but what we will all resist in the flesh because it's just too uncomfortable. All he's ever wanted is a son. He finally receives a son, but not just a son, but a son through supernatural circumstances, a son who's grown to now be a teenager, a son whom this father has groomed to be the heir of this promise, a son whom this man of faith has placed his entire life's weight in the, in the words that God has spoken to him. And now in an instant, it all comes crashing down around him when God says, pack up your son and go up the mountain and place him on the altar. Most people would deny their circumstances. They would, they would say a million different things. They would, try to, they would try to get out from under it. They wouldn't abide under the pressure of that moment. They would try to get around it some way. That's what we would almost all do. Abraham never denied his circumstances, but he did defy them. Which is what my goal for you is that when you leave here tonight... You will understand that your job as a faith-filled believer in Christ is to defy whatever circumstances are before you. Embrace the reality of the situation in which you're in. Don't, don't deny the gravity, weight, difficulty, struggle, complexity of, of the challenge that you're in. Embrace it. We are so conditioned to want to make things seem 
less devastating than they are. When what God wants us to do is say, it is devastating. It is uh, excruciating. It is uh, mind-blowing. But to then proceed in and defy those circumstances. So how do we, how do we press forward? Just think about when you're talking to somebody else and they're telling you about this horrible situation that they're in. One of the things that we do is our culture is predicated on we'll try to say, we try to convince them that it's not that bad. And our goal in convincing them that it's not that bad is by convincing them that it's not that bad and that it's going to be okay. That's going to spur them to move forward along the path that they need to go. That's human reasoning. That's not the reasoning that Abraham has at all. That's what I mean by defying your circumstances. See, faith is not convincing yourself that things don't exist when they do or that things do exist when they don't. Faith is, go, is looking crisis right in the eye and going, that is unbelievably bad. That's unbelievably painful. That's excruciatingly difficult. And realizing, true faith realizes that the fact that something is a crisis and difficult and whatever it is, does not in any way mean that it's not of God. Which, even to hear myself say that, I just want to retract that statement because if I'm a child of God and it's in my life, then guess what? It's of God. So... You see how conditioned we are to try to squirm around things when that's the last thing we should do. The Bible will never call you to ignore reality. There's not one place in Scripture where the Bible will even allude to the fact that we ought to ignore reality. We need to embrace it. And if you remember, you know, because of uh, my schedule, me and Matt have gotten twisted around a couple weeks to where, you know, and then he went back and did Noah and this and that. And so really I wasn't even, if things would have just went normally, I wouldn't have been on this text tonight. I wouldn't have been thinking about this all week. And when you look at in the providence of God, if you were here this morning and now you're hearing this, you're like, how in the world are those, these two texts on the same Sunday by this crazy, I mean, it's just, you know. Rather, it calls us to put on faith in the Lord of reality. See, what the Scripture is going to do is not, don't deny reality, put your faith in the Lord of reality. That it's one thing to say, well, I believe that God is sovereign. It's another thing to live as if you know that he is. And this is the illustration that Abraham is giving us. In other words, faith doesn't declare the circumstances and natural barriers to be non-existent. To the contrary, it simply declares that God is not shackled by them as we are. See, again, the way that we get into trouble is, is that we begin to 
we begin to, to believe in a God who thinks and understands on a human level, and that is a huge problem. Because he's not. That's a very small God. That's not the God of the Bible. So let's use Romans chapter 4 because when you take Hebrews 11 and Romans 4 and you stack them next to each other, boy, oh boy. So look at what what Paul says in Romans 4 about the exact same scenario. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be, referencing back to Genesis 12, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that he had promised what he had promised he was able to perform and therefore it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now, I just want you to think about a couple things. So Paul essentially boils this down to two ways that Abraham strengthened his faith. Because you, you, practically speaking, you'll be thinking to yourself, well, how do I strengthen my faith? How do, I, how do I have faith that embraces reality? How do I have faith that can defy my circumstances? And Paul's going to point out two things that sort of hover above everything else. The first one is, worshiping God grows faith. And so basically in Romans 4, 16 all the way through 19 build and then 20 and 21 are sort of these high marks. Verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief but was strengthened in faith giving glory to God. That phrase, giving glory to God, that is a phrase of worship. Worship is... Ascribing honor and praise to him as the one who alone has the ability to fulfill his seemingly impossible promises. So what builds faith, what will develop a deep, abiding, true faith is a worship of God. Worshiping God in the context of his ability to exceed our impossibilities. That when we run into something that we don't understand, that we can't see through, that we can't figure out, it's not a problem. I had a long conversation this week with a brother in faith. And if I'm honest, I got very frustrated. 
Because I finally said, listen, what is troubling me the most is that every time something bad happens, you panic. That is a very bad trait. That is a a characteristic of a lack of faith. People who panic worry me. That's not the way a believer lives. Because the second thing that grows faith is related, which is confidence. So you take these two things, worship and confidence, and confidence is what we see in verse 21. In verse 21, in being fully convinced. So on your handout, circle the, the, the word convinced because that's an important word. That's where this whole idea of confidence comes from. So look at what happens. Rather than trying to reconcile God's promise, which is you'll have a son through whom will come many descendants, trying to reconcile that with God's plan, which is I want you to sacrifice your son. See, why is it that for so long what happens is whenever we hear or read the story of Abraham taking Isaac up the mountain, we are consumed with, and it is a very emotionally charged situation, but what happens is we live in the, in the realm of here is this father taking his son up the mountain, and how hard must that be? But that's not, the writer of Hebrews is saying, That's a very shallow way to look at that. Have you ever considered the fact that Abraham is standing at the base of the mountain and he knows that God has promised him? God has already said, this is the son of promise. He already knows that. And he's already said, you're going to be the father of many nations and it's going to come through this seed. That's already been established. Then God says, now take him up and sacrifice him. The problem that that this is the son that he loves that he's got to go up and put on the altar is only, that's just the tip of the iceberg. The main problem that Abraham has is he has God's word here and God's word here and they are in direct conflict with one another and what is he going to do? Because the two things cannot be both true at the same time. Either this is the son of promise in whom there will be many nations, or I'm going to go up and sacrifice him. But both of those things aren't going to be true because he can't be the father of many nations if he's dead. You ever thought about that? Have you ever been in a situation where you've got to make a decision? And the Bible says... You should do this, and that, that this is wrong, and you shouldn't do this. Thus says the Lord. And then in another place, 
the Bible says that according to God's will, He wants us to do certain things or build certain relationships or whatever the case may be. I can think of lots of situations where, and so these two things have collided together in a situation where it seems like I've got to choose this or this. Most people honestly don't even get to that place because either, first of all, they're not interested in what God says because they just want to do what they want to do, or second of all, they just take the two things and then choose whichever one is the easiest path. But that's not what, that's not what we're dealing with here. So this is what Abraham does. Look at this. He, his confidence, Paul is telling us straight up, his confidence is in the fact that God cannot lie. Rather than getting all tangled up in the fact that you've got these two things that seem like they're on a collision course of opposite, one saying go left and one saying go right, and instead of going, well, I can't go left and right, this is what he says. I don't know about left and right. I don't know about all that's going to work, but here's the one thing I know. God doesn't lie. Now you're starting to see what that's what a person does who embraces the crisis. See, he doesn't say, well, now, I must be missing something here. I must be misunderstanding something here. There must be something that he doesn't. There's no human wisdom in all this. He says, here's what I know. God can't lie. So they both must be true. Now, now let's suppose you were Abraham's friend. And, and he was talking to you. And you said, so what are you going to do? And he says, well, God can't lie. So they're both true. And you're looking at him like, you can't go left and right. And, you, and Abraham just looks at you and says, God can't lie. He can't lie. That's faith. That's what faith looks like. So what Paul tells us in this text is that Abraham comes to the conclusion that God must be planning on raising Isaac from the dead because that's the, that's the only way because he said he was going to do this and he said, I'm going up there to do this. So these two things are going to happen. So the only way, I mean, you don't have to think about this a long time before you figure out there's only one way. But remember, I said two weeks ago, at this point, God's never raised anybody from the dead. Nobody's ever heard of that, seen that, thought about that. I mean, you know, that's like otherworldly. But it's the only, all he knows is God can't lie. So although the pressure on Abraham it was unimaginably intense. This is, this is what I'm imagining. You see, great faith is not oblivious. Great faith is engaged. And so what, this is what great faith looks like. God tells Abraham to take his son up the mountain. 
So Abraham doesn't just rush over, grab his son, grab some stuff, run up the mountain. That's not, that's not how that works. That's somebody in denial. This is how this works. He paces around. He goes in circles. He, you've never seen anybody so meticulously, methodically, and slowly gathering wood. When he gets up to the, to the place where he's going to build the altar... How slowly do you think he walked around selecting the rocks? Very slowly. Agonizing with every rock. Agonizing with every step. Agonizing in the reality of the tension of the moment of what's going to happen. Of just taking it all in. Doing it but embracing it at the same time. But as an act of worship with total confidence in God, Abraham ascended the hill with Isaac, fully assured and unwavering in his faith that God would somehow pull it off because he can't lie. Oh, my goodness. What would happen? If God would raise up a generation and all they did was know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God can't die, can't lie, it would turn the world upside down. But they're not here today. That's the problem. We just need a generation that believes God can't lie. That's all we need. And you would see, you would see the ramifications of, of what genuine, real faith would do on the globe. You would see shocking things happen. You know, if I think about all the things that Abraham didn't do, Abraham didn't, he, he didn't say, you know, you know, Lord, uh, can you run that by me again? You know how, you know, my kids, when, uh, uh, when I catch them in something, I go, hey, what about, they go, huh? Like when they know they're busted, they're trying to buy, give me, huh? They act like they didn't hear it. I go, you heard me. Or, you know, when you, you know, they're, they're trying to scramble for the answer to it, so they, they, they're like, they want me to say it again. I'm like, no, you heard it. But Abraham didn't do that. He didn't say, God, could you run that by me again? He didn't say, you know, why me? So many people today would just go, why me? Why is this happening to me? Why? why? I mean, I have it so hard and everyone else has it so easy. Why me? He didn't say that. In fact, you know what he didn't say? He didn't even say, Lord, why? Didn't even say that. He didn't say, Lord, I'll take my son up the mountain if you'll do this. Which, by the way, is always a super bad idea. 
Trying to bargain with God is a horrible idea. It will never work, and it will always blow up in your face. It's basically mocking God, and it's a terrible thing to do. But people nonetheless do it all the time. Or he didn't just simply say, no, I'm not going to do it. What he did was he embraced the tension of the crisis. And he operated by... So, so back to Hebrews 11 now. If you want to flip back or just listen to me. Now I want you to listen to it after we've unraveled it and look at how it looks differently. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. You know what that is? Worship. He offered up Isaac. That's worship. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, worship, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. So see, he knows the promise. And then look at verse 19, the first word in verse 19, concluding. Circle that word. Do you know what that word means? That word means to reckon. It means to calculate. He calculated. He concluded. It means confidence. He has confidence that God was able to raise him up. You see, worship and confidence. Worship and confidence. Verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his, the sons of Joseph and worship, leaning on the top of his staff. Verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instruction concerning his bones. Here's what I want you to know about this section. First of all, when Abraham died, he left a legacy of faith to those who followed. You see? So what, Hebrew, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is just leaving the breadcrumbs for us to follow. Just, le- just showing, just solidifying this whole situation of these are what faithful people do. This is the, the, the consequences or the implications of great faith. The people that followed Abraham followed him. They were impacted and shaped and molded by his faith. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph were all just like Abraham, imperfect. But when they were tested, they had faith that looked beyond death. Every one of them. Look at the, look at the, it, this, this is the mind-boggling thing, is that as we're, as we're negotiating around trouble, as we're trying to, you know, relieve ourselves from all risk and danger and crisis, and we're trying to, we're, we're always looking for the smooth path, and yet All the heroes in Scripture, look at the list of names. I mean, just pick a crisis. I mean, all I've got to do is say Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And you can just start, if you know your Bible at all, you can start naming off just time after time where they they failed and were human and where they wound up in the most critical, difficult, crazy, life-threatening scenarios. 
that's what faith is for. That's what it's for. You see, what makes the dying faith of these three men so significant is that, like Abraham, they died without seeing the fulfillment of God's promise. Again, I have no control over this, but I'm just telling you. How could you not see God's trying to tell us as a people? I'm talking about us in this building right now. Here we, we look at a passage of Scripture this morning where the Jews celebrate and the promise isn't even fulfilled. And here we are again. And we're looking at people. And every single one of them died and went to heaven. Promise was never fulfilled on earth. And guess who's coming next? Moses. And guess who didn't go into the promised land? Moses. And guess who wasn't fulfilled on earth? Moses. Don't you see? We want so desperately to... I mean, I don't know what it is. It's just mind-boggling. But all I know is it's not biblical. Yet through all of this, all the ups and downs, all the craziness of their lives, these three men all ended up basking in the sunlight of true faith. So somehow they go through all of these difficulties and all of these trials and all of these struggles. And at the end of the day, I mean, we just sit back in our comfortable, uh, you know, lazy boy in our climate-controlled you know, safe home, and we read these stories of, and they're literally hanging by a thread of grace on the, between life and death, and we're just sitting there comfortably reading it going, isn't that just wonderful? And here's the thing, they died without their promises fulfilled, and yet they died basking in the glory of their faith. Which just, again, begs the question, shouldn't it be us? If anyone's going to die in the world triumphantly, should that not be us? I mean, we ought to die in the most triumphant way ever. It's like I said at Charles Fairley's funeral. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. He knew how to finish. That's how you finish. So verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child. But they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked 
to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Okay. Now only Hebrews is going to put you in predicament after predicament after predicament. If you're just willing to turn on your brain and think, you're just going to, it's just, it's like a theological chess game. Every, every single passage you read, checkmate, checkmate, checkmate. So look at verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child. Then the bomb drops. And they were not afraid of the king's command. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Because if they were not afraid of the king's command, then why did they hide their son? Hmm. They hid him. Did they not hide him? They hid him. But the Bible says that they weren't afraid of the king's command. So here we are again. So what are we going to do? Are we going to slough it off and say, well, oh, well, it must be something that, you know, it, you know, it does, must not mean that or we must not. Or are we going to, like Abraham, say, well, God can't lie. So see, according to verse 23, Moses' parents were not afraid of the king's edict and they hid him. And I'm telling you that That's a contradiction. I can hear the voices of the shallow and culturated theologians of our day and all the foolishness that they would say in this moment. Well, I'll tell you what, if they weren't afraid, what they would have done is they would have just loaded up Moses in their arms and they would have just walked around Egypt and just dared somebody to harm him. Because if they didn't fear, what we need is people who just don't fear. We need people who are just going to, they're just going to throw caution to the wind. They're just going to do it. Like, I dare you to try to kill God's child. They're a moron. They are. They're a fool. That's not, that's not biblical wisdom at all. This is biblical wisdom. You got to reckon all this. You got to think this through. So what's really going on here? Well, if 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 we go back and we read the account in Exodus thoughtfully, this is what we're going to immediately come to the conclusion of well there are two threats in the king's edict one against the babies and one against those who refuse to kill the babies right 
It's very clear. So, under Pharaoh's rule, if you kill the baby, you save your life. And if you don't kill the baby, you risk your life. Right? Yes. And so what did Moses' parents choose to do? They chose to not kill the baby, which is to what? To risk your life because they were not afraid to die, which is a completely different thing than being a fool who dares Pharaoh to kill their son, which would have inevitably ended up in the death of Moses, right? So here's here's what I'm trying to say. They had enough sense to fear for their son's life because they embraced the reality of the situation when there's a monster in control who wants to kill all the baby boys. They're not going to deny the reality of somebody who's trying to kill all the baby boys. Are you with me? And they're saying, this is the reality. I'm embracing the reality. That's the situation we're in. But let me tell you what. We're going to do everything in our power to keep him alive. And here's why. Because we're not afraid for our life. You understand? Yes. And what that is is wisdom. The person who just says, well, I'm just going to walk around with the baby and God's going to protect me. That's, that's ignorance. Unless God tells you to walk around with the baby, then you best not walk around with the baby. So here's the principle. The course and quality of our lives is determined much more, much more by our decisions than our circumstances. So... Listen, we, unfortunately, unfortunately, it just, uh, it's just lost on this modern empire in which we live. This whole principle is completely, it's gone. It is gone. It's so rare when I uncover this in a person that I'm just amazed. It's like finding a, 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 a ruby or a diamond. We all live as if our circumstances are determining the outcome of our lives. So basically, you know what that means? We are, we are slaves to our circumstances. We say that, well, the reason that I'm the way I am is because this happened to me and that happened to me and this happened to me and that happened to me. And so that's what's caused me to be the way I am. And so that's why I am the way I am is because of all this. I mean, hogwash. That's ridiculous. That's fine if you don't know God. If the Spirit of God's not in you, that's fine to say that. But if you know Jesus... He trumps all of that. And you don't think that he hasn't given you the power to make wise decisions in the midst of your difficult situations? Am I not reading an entire passage about people who had great faith and were in great crisis? And what did they do? They made great decisions in the midst of great crisis. 
They didn't pretend like it wasn't a great crisis. They embraced it and then made, they didn't let the situation determine the outcome of their life. They made wise decisions in the midst of circumstances and decisions drove the outcome of their life. That is completely different than what you see today. Don't live as if to avoid crisis. Don't do this. This isn't in your handout, but it should be. Do not live as to avoid crisis. Live instead as to be wise in the crisis. If you want to flourish in this world, please listen to what I'm saying. Do not live to avoid crisis. Live in such a way as to make wise decisions in the midst of crisis. Why? Because in case you have been under a rock for a thousand years, you're going to be in crisis. You live in a broken world. So why would we be running around panicking because there's crisis? See how crazy it is? It makes so much sense right now in this moment. But tomorrow afternoon, this is going to seem like it was 100 years ago that I said this. I'm telling you. Because the whole world is completely backwards on this whole concept. Our lives in Christ rise and fall in maturity and holiness on the basis of not your circumstances but your decisions. What makes your maturity and your holiness is the decisions that you make. The decisions that we make are critical. Right choices are made on the basis of right faith. You show me a person who makes right choices, and I'll show you a person who has great faith. You show me a person who has great faith, and I'll show you a person who makes right choices. Those two things are never, if one's there, the other's always there. They're always there. Always. I'm constantly looking for people who aren't rattled. It's hard to find. It's hard to find people who aren't rattled. I've never seen such... frailty... in the realm of faith as what is in the world today. It is unbelievable. And yet... You, you open up the scriptures and you read it and you just think, wow, look at, look at what we have at our disposal. My goodness. I just wake up every day and, and say, God, I just want to live this right here. I just, just want to live this. That's what I want to do. I want to live it. And you know what? My, I, I, every day of my life is a crisis. Every moment of my life is a crisis. So what? I'm not going to 
I'm not going to backtrack. I'm not going to get rattled or flustered. Or You know why? Because I have zero expectation that it's ever going to change. But I have faith and confidence in the God of the Scripture. So, let's look at what happens. We'll just boom, 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 each section. First of all, right faith accepts God's plans. Verse 23, you can write out to the side, verse 23. Accepts God's plans. Notice in verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. See? And so here's what they do. They have a child. Most of you in the room have had children. You have a child. It's a big moment. You, you didn't even know you could love something as much as until you had a child. It was a whole new realm of love, a whole new understanding. But what if you have a child in the situation that you have a child in? Your circumstances is somebody is killing all the baby boys, and here you are with a baby boy. Now you, what are you going to do? Are you going to panic? Are you going to go crazy? Are you going to fret? Are you going to freak out? Or are you going to execute wisdom in the midst of the crisis? See, they embrace, they accept God's plan. They realize, listen, God's sovereign. So you know what? I don't really care what anybody thinks. I really don't. I don't care what you think about the first thing about politics. Let me tell you something. If somebody won the election, then by golly, God wanted them to win the election. So just shut up. Just shut up. He determines who sits in control. Period. So stop talking about it. So if you have a child and your child is born into this world, then guess what you do? You Execute wisdom in the midst of this world because you know what? The God who sits on the throne of this world is in control. And if he didn't, if, if it was to be a different way, it would be a different way. See, the, the point I'm trying to get to is faith understands that God has given me the capacity to be faithful to him in every and any situation that could possibly happen in the, in the universe. If I'm at home tonight, in the middle of the night, and I hear a noise, and I go out in my backyard, and there's a UFO landed in my yard, and there are aliens doing some kind of weird dance out in the grass, you know what? I'm going to execute wisdom in the midst of that moment. I'm going to be like, man, that's the craziest thing I've ever seen. But you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not just going to abandon all. Hey, it can happen. I don't know, but all I know is, is that you can have faith in any situation. Secondly, right faith rejects the world's esteem. See, you notice all of these, the things that derail us. So like we're going, yeah, I mean, I want that. I'm going to do that. But here's the problem. What's the first thing that's going to come along to derail you? Well, guess what? is the first thing to leave 
The minute you stop allowing your circumstances to determine who you become and you start executing wisdom and making right decisions, what do you think the first thing that's going to happen? Everybody you know and everybody you talk to is going to say, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Every single person. They're going to say, well, you're crazy. That's what they're going to say. Isn't that what they're going to say? Rod, what is wrong with you? You know what you should do? Why don't you just, you could just stay here. You could just coast along. You could just get a paycheck. You could just do what you're doing. Hey, you could just raise your family. You could just play it safe. You could just, why don't you just do that? Because that's what the wisdom of the world is. That's what the esteem of the world is. And everybody, and I'm talking about people close, people related to you, people, and they're saying, well, I don't think this is a good idea. Well, what do you think? Well, well, well what's the security? I mean, how, how, who's going to put your kids through college, Rod? Who, what's gonna, what about your life insurance? What about your health insurance? What about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? And most people just buckle. They just buckle. They don't have the faith. But the Bible says, go plant churches. But when somebody goes to plant a church, the world says, well, I wouldn't do that. Because you don't believe that the God of the Bible can't lie. And let me explain something to you. It doesn't matter what happens from here. You know that? I'm talking about him. Here's a good lesson for you in faith. It matters zero what happens from here. You know why? Because his job is not to do anything, build anything, make anything. That's not his job. You know what his job is? His job is simply to get his son and go up the mountain. And whatever happens up the mountain ain't got nothing to do with him. Any more than if you think all this has to do with me, you're crazy. You see, God's just looking for people that go, yes, you can't lie. But you know what we have? We got a world full of people that just want to give us their opinion. Well, I don't really want anybody's opinion. I want to do what God says. And that's not play it safe. Story of my life. Why don't you just back up, Tony? Cool off, Tony. Just ride it out, Tony. Just coast it out. Not interested. Not interested. I'm going to keep my foot on the gas pedal and I'm going to shove it to the ground till the day I die. That's what I'm going to do. Next, right faith rejects the world's pressure. Pressure. Verse 27, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Hmm. Okay, so here's your homework. Verse 27 says that Moses forsook Egypt. He left all the riches of Egypt, walked out of the palace, unthinkable riches, said, no, nah, I'm out of that. But what facilitated all of this? He, he had a moment where he snapped. He had a Mordecai moment, didn't he? 
a defining moment where he snapped and he saw a man abusing a Hebrew and he went over there and he, and he defended that man and he killed an Egyptian. You go back and read it. And so, Exodus 2 says, he fled to Midian. And guess what Exodus 2.14 says? After he killed the Egyptian, he feared what Pharaoh would do to him. Go read it. And what's this say? Not fearing the wrath of the king. I told you, Hebrews ain't no joke. Y'all got me worked up a sweat up here. Hmm? So what's going on? Again, it's not that complicated, but it just causes you to work, to think. He didn't fear Pharaoh because he intervened and he killed an Egyptian. But let me tell you what wisdom says. Wisdom says, well, now, if I'm about to die, then what I ought to do is I ought to leave and go to Midian because I'm not going to be any good to anybody dead. So, right? Yeah. So he, he was fearless enough to stand up against the oppression, but he wasn't stupid to just stand there and let him kill him. I wish we had three hours, because let me tell you what I would immediately do right now. I would just, we would go right into about an hour conversation about how every single day you make decisions in wisdom. And there are people, I mean, you're going to go out of here. There are people, they'll leave here, leave this facility tonight, and they'll get in their car, and they won't put their seatbelt on. On purpose. And they'll drive somewhere with no seatbelt on. And if you talk to them, you know what they're going to say? They're going to say, well, God's sovereign. If it's my time, it's my time. Zero wisdom. Zero. 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 See, Moses was not afraid. He stepped up and did the right thing, but he wasn't foolish. You see? You see how that goes together? That's what real faith does. And then lastly, after it doesn't, it rejects the world's pressure. Right faith accepts God's promise, which is Definitely the hardest part of all this. Because the promise of God is what's always, where is the promise of God? The promise of God is never in, in the moment. It's not in the today. The promise of God is out there somewhere. And you've got to, you, for the promise of God to, to, to work in your life and impact your life, you've got to cling to it. You've got to hold to it. You've got to bind to it. You've got to weave it into your soul. You've got you to force it into your DNA. And you've got to just walk 
And you don't know when you're coming to the end. You don't know when. You don't know. The promise of God is just out there. And you know that God promised it, so you know that he's going to do it. You know that he can't lie. But when people go, well, when do you think that's going to happen? You go, I don't have any idea, but I know it's going to happen. So the example we have here is, first of all, the Passover. Well, I mean, think about it. The death angel's coming. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to, kill a, you're going to kill an animal. You're going to sprinkle the blood over the doorpost. Now, we read that. We know that. We, but the problem is you got to get in the moment. Now, you've never heard of that before. You've never seen that before. That's a whole new concept. Nobody's ever talked about that, seen that. That's never happened before. So now we're in uncharted waters. Then we're going we're gonna to flee on out of here. So here we go. I'm out. I'm going. I'm leaving. Moses is leaving them, leading them away. They're going out of Egypt. Here comes the Egyptians. You know, here's Moses and his, you know, clan. They got some spatulas, a couple pots and pans. You know, they're real warriors. And then, you know, you've got this unbelievably armed, fortified military detachment that's pursuing them from behind. And there's the Red Sea. Well, what are we going to do here? There's no boat. There's no bridge. There's no conceivable, logical option. There, there's, no, no, there's, no, there's no protocol. What do you do? You're going to die here or you're going to drown here? I mean, you're stuck in a... But if God can't lie... If my faith is such that I embrace my circumstances, I'm not going, well, this isn't really going to happen. It's a, no, uh-uh. This is a crisis. It's real. Our life is in jeopardy. That water's going to drown us. Those people are going to kill us. We're in the middle. They're closing in. What are we going to do? We're going to be faithful. You think Moses said, well, don't worry, guys. We're about to walk across this on dry land. I mean, of course he didn't. He had no clue how he was going to get across. But he knew God would do it. You see, don't you know there are things in your life right now and you don't know how you're going to get through them? You don't know. And if I asked you, I said, now... Now, how do you plan on getting through this? How do you plan on dealing with this? You'd look at me and say, I don't really know. I just know I'm going to. I just am. Because I'm not going to be ruled by my circumstances. I'm going to make wise choices in the midst of whatever happens around me. So if we're going to pull all this together, to make wise decisions in crisis, two more things that aren't in your handout, sorry, but that's what happens when there's three or four days in between a Wednesday and a Sunday, I can think more. If I'm going to make wise decisions in the midst of crisis, I think the two things that I'm going to, I'm going to absolutely have to fortify inside of me is, I said that, I must solidify in my soul the unshakable confidence 
that I was fashioned by God for nothing less than Him. You see, at the end of the day, I know that God made me for Himself, for His glory. And that is an unshakable, unmovable conviction in my soul that everything about me believes that I was made for Him alone. And so therefore, I'm not going to get rattled. And secondly, I've got to, I've got to elevate the, my soul And what elevates my soul and empowers me to live in the fullness of the created purpose that God has for me is not religious intimidation or anxiety or fear. This is what I mean. I mean, I'm not going to get anywhere. My faith will never be great if my motivation is staying out of trouble. If my answer, if someone says, why do you do the things you do? And my answer is because I'm supposed to. That is true, but insufficient. You're never going to have great faith. You're never going to have great faith that way. You've got you've to come up above that. You've got to elevate your soul above religious intimidation. I don't know any other way to put it. So the way you do that is... is it's faith in the, the promise that's out in front of me. That the enjoyment that sin can bring is fleeting and it's futile. And it does not compare to what I have in the presence of a radiant Savior. And I base that on Psalm 1611. So, to put it simply, the only way to liberate your heart from servitude to the passing pleasure of sin by, is by cultivating a passion for the joy and delight of beholding the beauty of Jesus. You see, it's, it's got to be a passion. It's got to be a passion. I th- I'm, I'm pretty sure that I borderline on fanaticism, and I'm okay with that, so it's fine. But I'm telling you, I'm a fanatic. I'm so over the top, but that's just, I'm good with it. I love it. That's just me. I don't know how to relate to the Bible any other way. But here's what happens. When you are passionate about God, I'm talking about passionate about God, then passion for God is only attainable by faith. You know, because passion, you can't fake passion. You can't drum up passion. Passion is something that is... To be genuine and real, it can't be coerced, can it? You see, you can't make yourself or anyone else passionate about anything, can you? You can't do it. You can't do it. 
So what you do is you monitor your, your, the passion of your heart. And that's a, that's a barometer to your faith. And if your faith is waning, then you need to focus on worshiping the God of the promise and confidence in the God of the promise. You see? That's all I got. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for tonight. Your word is just so spectacular.